guys, I'm Zach, your host of the Augzoro Podcast, and welcome to Augzoro Chat number four. A lot to talk about this week, and I'm excited. I hope you are too. The first thing that I wanted to get into is the recent reaction to Joe Rogan coming out in support of Bernie Sanders. As you can tell listening to this podcast you know i love i love joe rogan i i think that he's opened a lot of doors for podcasters he's kind of blown the door off of podcasting in terms of reaching a super wide audience being able to monetize it kind of creating a a culture and a, and a following around his podcast and he's doing something that's really fucking cool and on his podcast the other day he came out in support of Bernie Sanders. He said, quote, I think I'll probably, well, I can't even talk. I think I'll probably, I think I will probably vote for Bernie. He's been insanely consistent his entire life. He's basically been saying the same thing, been for the same thing his whole life. And that in itself is a very powerful structure to operate from. So he he's basically saying, you know, Bernie's been consistent. He's been ha- having the same views, the same platforms, which is true. It's it's very hard to go cut political ads about Bernie switching his viewpoints because he's been a socialist since fucking 2000 BC. I don't agree with a lot of Bernie Sanders what a, a lot of what Bernie Sanders says, but to Joe Rogan's point, he has been very consistent. And so after Joe Rogan came out in support of Bernie Sanders, Bernie then made a campaign ad with Joe Rogan saying exactly what I just quoted. Uh, basically, you know, I think I'll probably vote for Bernie. And it came out under the, the Sanders ad campaign. And in response to that, a bunch of people came out and said that Bernie endorsing Joe Rogan's endorsement basically you know, endorsement for endorsement. Bernie saying, I like you. Rogan saying, I like you. And then Bernie used it for his campaign ad. A bunch of people came out and said that, you know, Rogan's a racist. He's a bigot. He's a transphobe. Uh, he uses the N-word. There's a bunch of uh, videos of Joe Rogan compilations, basically showing him using the N-word 45 times, which he does. I wouldn't do that, uh, especially not in two days uh, landscape, but Joe Rogan chooses to use the N word, and he, in defense of uh, Joe Rogan, I, I would say if you've listened to Joe Rogan, you know that he's not a bigot or transphobe. It's that's not even a question in your mind. He's had so many different people with different views on the podcast. He gets labeled as far right, which doesn't even make sense. He obviously means liberal. He has people on the right and the left on his podcast, he I think anyone is labeled far right if they're just not on the side of super woke. If you're not all the way to the far, far, far left, then from the far left's perspective, then you're an alt-right white supremacist, Nazi, whatever that group that Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin all find themselves in. I guess the intellectual dark web. But yeah, so all these these people that are supposedly on the the woke left on Twitter came out. And, uh, for example, uh, 
Carlos Maza, who works at Vox, Vox, says, quote, Bernie's campaign cutting a campaign ad with Joe Rogan fucking sucks. Rogan is an incredibly influential bigot and Democrats should be marginalizing him. Uh, other people uh, said Joe Rogan is a transphobic bigot who shills for quackery and cuddles up to dangerous racists. Uh Another one said Rogan can vote for whoever he wants, but I don't think Bernie campaign should be touting a transphobic creep who gives a platform to Nazis. First of all, he's not transphobic. People conflate his uh, his view of transgender uh, women should not be able to compete in women's sports as transphobic. That's not transphobic. I, I agree. I think if you're a biological male, you should not be allowed to compete with females that were born female in the sport. That just seems insane. As a male, you were you were bathed in testosterone since the time you were in a, a womb. You have thicker bone structure. All these advantages that basically don't even come close to the, the, the strength and uh, putting people in the, in the same group uh, male and female in terms of strength. It's not even close. So I agree with Joe Rogan on that. He's not transphobic for thinking that. I think he wants people that are uh, transgender to be able to live their lives peacefully and choose whatever they want to do. But it's just that when you're starting to affect other people, like beating the shit out of women in UFC when you were born with a dick and balls kind of crosses the line. Uh, the second part of that statement, Nazis, I, the meaning of Nazi has been completely diluted. I think a Nazi at this point just means someone that you disagree with for a lot of people on Twitter. A Nazi used to be someone that was part of Hitler's regime that was genocidal, that was gassing people in concentration camps, gassing Jews in concentration camps, believed in white supremacy. That has now been diluted to saying I disagree with you, therefore you're a Nazi. You're on this this all-white Nazi blanket that just gets cast over society. I think it's interesting, this whole rejection of Joe Rogan from the super woke left, because a lot of these people support Bernie Sanders. And just looking at it from a non-political standpoint, if the most popular podcaster in the world Again, Joe Rogan, I believe, gets over a billion and a half downloads a year. He gets hundreds of millions of downloads per month. Why would you not be in support of that endorsement? If I was running for president and Joe Rogan came out and endorsed me, that's millions of votes. That, that's pushing your cause forward. So it's really interesting that something that the super woke left once uh, – and there, there are people uh, across the liberal spectrum that want to vote for Bernie. So it's not just the, the super woke uh, far left. But I think this is a hugely positive thing for the Bernie campaign. So why would you go out and malign Bernie for endorsing Joe Rogan's endorsement? It doesn't make sense to me. It's like... Uh, kind of what I spoke about a little before, you can never be woke enough. The left is kind of eating itself alive, even though it helps Bernie get potentially millions of more votes, having Joe Rogan endorse him. The left is trying to tear Bernie down for having that endorsement, which does not 
makes sense to me. I, I, I don't know. I don't pretend to understand it. The thing that gives me solace is that these people on Twitter are not real life people. I, I don't even think a lot of times if you met the person who is tweeting these sorts of things on the street, they wouldn't say this. It's just like the, the internet gives you this alter ego where you just say things that are incredibly irrational, stupid, don't make sense. And you just send them out into the, the Twitter sphere and you kind of just do it to stir up controversy or get followers. You want likes you're, you're kind of falling into this mentality that I should say this or I should say that because people want me to say this like I'm not even thinking for myself anymore I'm not having original thoughts I know that my side would want me to say this so therefore I'm going to say that Bernie Sanders is a piece of shit for endorsing Joe Rogan even though it pushes the the campaign forward in many ways one sec I'm just gonna grab a book real quick uh be right back okay so yeah i just wanted to go into a quote that this whole bernie thing reminded me of this is actually from the the problem with everything a book that i mentioned last week about megan dom the full title (laughs) the full title is the problem with everything my journey through the new culture wars and oops caught there she says and and she's talking about the the kind of uh feeling that our world is out of control and this whole thing where we have to choose sides and we're not thinking for ourselves so she says quote we've become toddler versions of ourselves we've given into a culture in which narcissism is affirmed with clicks and likes on the internet and then reaffirmed in direct proportion to its alliance with in-group thinking We're raising the next generation to fear its most original thoughts. So so when people heard that Bernie came out and supported Joe Rogan, it's hard to believe that they were honestly thinking that this is a bad thing for the Bernie campaign or that Bernie was a piece of shit for using his endorsement in an ad campaign. What I think is happening, which Megan Dom alludes to, is that people have an an initial reaction, an original reaction to to an event, and then that original reaction gets morphed into what they think they should be saying, or or how can I, how can I use this reaction and then form it into something that will be retweeted and liked by the people in my sphere. Even though I don't genuinely believe this, this is going to get me points with the people in my group and kind of raise me up in my ideological circle. So I agree with Megan Dom in that respect, that people are not having as much original thought as they used to because of this whole fucking uh, battle that's going on on the left and the right. It's not just the left, but this uh, kind of center for attention and to seem like who is the most uh, woke, like who who has it the most. So yeah, just something to think about. Something else I wanted to get into is reason in opposition to religion. And I'm actually rereading The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins right now, which is basically... Richard Dawkins' pitch 
to be an atheist, why he's an atheist, basically. Coffee sip. Um, and one of one of the things he talks about in the book, which I've noticed growing up as a Catholic, going to private Catholic school, is reason in opposition to religion and how belief, believing in God, is the greatest virtue that one can aspire to, especially in Christianity and Catholicism. When I was going through Catholic school, it was kind of looked down upon to question the faith. You know, if you, if you, if you had questions, that meant that your faith wasn't strong enough. So it wasn't that you needed to look for evidence to reaffirm your belief. It was that you just need to dig down deeper and believe even harder in something that lacks evidence. And that is a virtue. Why, why is it a, a virtue to believe in something without evidence, which is something that is common to religion? If you believe in the faith contrary to evidence, that is something that is praised. It's like, oh, your faith is so strong, even though there's all this evidence against it or maybe no evidence to support it, you're still believing it no matter what. Why would an all-powerful God care if we believe in him? That's also a question that Richard Dawkins raises, you know, if we're just human beings, which we are, and God is the perfect creation and he made us, why would he give a shit if we believe in him or not? And why is belief so important to get into heaven? If you believe in heaven, why is your belief the thing that's going to get you there? If, if you're, imagine you're standing at the gates of heaven and you lived an amazing life meaning that you've done a lot of good for other people, you've you've done good for yourself, you raised a good family, you've been a good husband, wife, uh, son, daughter, whatever it is, and you get to the gates of heaven and you do all this good shit because you believe in doing good for other people, and then God says, Well, did you believe in me though? Did you did you waver in your faith? Did you put me belief in me before everything else? And you say no, honestly, I, I didn't. I, I, I didn't believe fully in you. I have a lot of questions that I need answered and I wanted answered and there's not much evidence to support it. So I didn't believe in God while I was alive. I, I believed in doing good for other people. I wanted to do good because I can, but I didn't believe in you. And then God says, all right, fuck off. You're not getting into heaven. That's always baffled me. It's like, why why would a God be so, like a perfect God be so concerned with the little tiny pesky humans believing in him? Like how arrogant is God? How egotistical is God to need our belief? Like it's a needy God, which doesn't make sense. If you're an all-powerful God, why the fuck do you give a shit if anyone believes in you or not? You know you're God. You know you're the one who can smite us with the wave of a hand. He can move heaven and earth with just a flick of his finger. He can destroy everything. Why the fuck do you give a shit if one little corner of the universe, one little small piece of a planet of a, in a single galaxy, in a single 
a single solar system in a single galaxy with an infinite amount of space, why the fuck do you give a shit if human beings don't believe in you? Why is belief held so highly? And I've never been able to fully understand this, which is why I'm, I'm, I guess, according to Richard Dawkins, I'm a de facto atheist. I don't believe in God, but I acknowledge that there's a chance that God does exist. But why? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's, there's an answer to it. People get so wrapped up in their belief. I, I think that questioning someone's belief, we, we should be able to get to a place where you can question someone's belief without, without it coming across as messing with their identity or, you know, slighting that person. Like, I honestly just want to know why you believe this shit. Like, why do you believe what you do? I'm, I'm honestly interested in it. I think we should get to a point in society where you should be able to question someone's belief. Like you question, you know, why someone likes a certain book or a certain movie. Uh, you know, you want to know what someone is interested in. You're not like if, if I if I like a certain book and you say, you know, why do you like that book? It's stupid. I am not going to feel slighted by that, really. You know, if if you say it's stupid, I'm, I might be pissed off a little bit. But if you say, hey, I don't really agree with what this author is saying in that book. Uh, can you kind of tell me about that? Be like, yeah, sure. You know, I don't agree with everything either. But this is what I think. This is what I believe about what I've read. When, if you question someone's religion, it's like you are denying a sense of their being their purpose because religion is so intertwined to our being and it takes it's more than a belief it's an identity and i think that we would be better off getting to a place where we can question belief we should be able to have conversations about hey like i i don't see any evidence for what you believe i i'm not discounting your experience i think that you know there can be value in some of the things that are a part of your religion but there's just no evidence there so I'm, I'm interested in like hearing your perspective like why why do you believe it and just kind of digging into religion's grip on belief over evidence it's like like I was saying before it is a virtue to believe not only in spite of evidence but without any evidence at all if if you believe without evidence, that is something that's put on a pedestal. And if you believe in something, even though there's evidence to the contrary in religion, it's like your faith is so strong that you're believing despite the evidence. It's like the evidence is a test of your faith, which is super, super fucked up. Like if you should be able to question something as a part of your faith, if your faith doesn't allow for you to question things without getting the kind of the uh, traditional answer of, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways. That was always what teachers said in high school. If, you, if they didn't have an answer for someone, something, they would say, you know, God works in mysterious ways. We're not meant to understand it. That, that, to me, that's such a cop out. So I think that that aspect of religion, reason in opposition to belief is very harmful 
Uh, there's a quote that I wanted to share from Sam Harris. It's actually in The God Delusion. It's mentioned in The God Delusion. But this is coming from Sam Harris's book, End of Faith. He kind of talks about this rational justification of belief. And Sam Harris says, quote, We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there's no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, mad, psychotic, or delusional. Clearly, there is sanity in numbers. And yet, it is merely an accident of history that is considered normal in our society to believe that the creator of the universe can hear your thoughts, while it is demonstrative of mental illness to believe that he is communicating with you by having the rain tap in Morse code on your bedroom window. And so, while religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are so yeah i will i will leave it on that for that topic so the next thing i wanted to discuss is preference versus prejudice especially with sexual attraction and feminism so i think there's an idea being pushed lately especially in the fourth wave modern feminist circles that if a man does not find a woman attractive, that he is somehow disempowering her or the man is being sexist in some way. And basically saying that a man is prejudiced towards a woman if he doesn't find her sexual, sexually attractive and i think there's a there's a big difference between preference and prejudice there's no active uh prejudicing i think that's a word prejudice uh it's probably prejudice prejudicing uh does not it sounds like it could be a word but is not a word maybe you know Pre- prejudice prejudiciation uh <laughs> prejudice uh so yeah, there's a difference between preference and prejudice. When a guy sees a woman walking down the street, he has an initial reaction. I think subconscious. I don't think it's a conscious. You're you're not you're not actively trying to figure out in the moment is she attractive? Is she not attractive? You just get a feeling like yeah, that woman's attractive, you know? Or no, she's not. I'm not attracted to her. It's like this. Uh, it's like a primal, a primal instinct. It's more of like an instinct of attractiveness. It's not like men are going around choosing, saying like, I'm going to choose to find this woman attractive. I'm going to choose to not find this woman attractive. Same thing for women. I think women, uh, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a woman attracted to a man, but I imagine that they operate in a similar fashion where they get a gut feeling like an initial knee jerk reaction. Like, yeah, that guy's hot yeah, that guy's attractive, or no, that guy's not attractive. No, that's not hot. They're not actively trying to disempower the the man in some way by labeling him as unattractive. It's just a, a split second, like snap of the fingers decision. Men have preferences. So for me, you know, I, I have, I have a, a semi broad, uh, sexual, uh, preference in terms of physical body type for women I, w- I would say that I don't like super skinny women like unhealthily skinny women sometimes like you see in the the modeling 
world. I, I think that's a very unrealistic version, an unrealistic ideal to have for women. But I also don't like obese women. Um, and, and that's also me. I work out. I, I, I work hard to maintain the body that I have. It's not a perfect body, but I'm in pretty good shape. I work out four to five times a week. I lift weights. I come from an athletic background. I'm also attracted to women that have similar uh, like athletic features and, and, and figures. They don't have to be 85 pounds, but at the same time, I'm probably not going to hook up with a girl who's 250 pounds. Like there's, there's a wiggle room there, but at the same time I have preferences. Um, I, I, I think, you know, it, it is a gut reaction, but I think it's also, it also has to do with how you take care of yourself and what you, what you can get, what you're able to reach in terms of, attracting a women to you like you are attracted to them so you know if I was 300 pounds I'm probably not going to hook up with women that I find super super attractive because they're not going to find me attractive you know I have if I want to if I want to have a chance with the women that I do find attractive I have to do some work on myself it's not it's not a slight uh I, I don't take it as a slight on me if a woman does not find me attractive it's more you know I want to be in shape a because it's healthy I love working out and b because it allows me to have sex with women that are beautiful that I think are beautiful and that I'm attracted to um it also brings up an interesting point where I, I there's like this this uh notion that straight white males are in charge of what women look like if they're attractive or that straight white males determine the ideal figure for a woman like we we are attracted to this they therefore women try to look like what straight white males are attracted to um I, I don't think there's any evidence for that. In fact, much much of the consumerism and ads are driven by women. I believe almost 80% of consumerism is driven by women. And also the people in control of fashion magazines, many of them are women and gay men. The people that are putting out the covers that have, you know, really fat women being held up on the cover of Cosmopolitan like there was last year just obese women on the cover and on the opposite end of the spectrum, super skinny women on the cover, like unhealthily skinny. I don't think either one is good, but the, the people that are in charge of making these decisions, most of them are women and gay men. The, the straight white males, I think for the most part, guys have a pretty normal spectrum of attraction. We don't want stick thin women and we also don't want obese women. Uh, you know, most of the guys that I grew up around are pretty, pretty normal. We don't have these super unrealistic standards of sexual attraction and beauty that are, that we're made to think come from males in the media. There's also, uh, I, I think this brings up another, another point that there's a difference between beauty and sexual attraction. I can find someone or something beautiful and not be attracted to them. For example, like I can think 
a woman that I'm not sexually attracted to is a beautiful person. She may be a beautiful person. Like if, if I get to know her uh, beyond the initial uh, physical appearance, maybe she's a beautiful person. Maybe she's an asshole. Same thing for guys. Maybe if a girl gets to know a guy beyond the physical, maybe he's a good guy. Maybe he's a piece of shit. It all just depends. But sexual attraction is not the same as beauty. So when if I say I'm not attracted to a girl, I'm not sexually attracted to a girl. That's not saying that I don't think that she's a beautiful person. It's not a slight on her moral characteristic or personality in any way. It's purely just based off the physical, that like initial instinct reaction of I am attracted to you or I'm not attracted to you. And uh, the same thing of if people try to say to me, you know, like if someone came up to me and said, you know, I'm not attracted to you, I'm not going to take that as a slight against me in any way. That's just saying that, you know, for whatever reason, that girl is not attracted to me and that's fine. I I don't need you to be attracted to me. Girls don't need us to be attracted to them. They don't need every single guy to be attracted to them. That's fine. It's just like, the I, I hate the idea that it's some sort of prejudice when a guy doesn't find a certain woman attractive. It, it's nothing about her other than that initial physical reaction of like primally biologically. I just don't find you sexually attractive or I do find you sexually attractive. It's not demeaning. It's not, uh, you know, it's not disempowering women to think that it's just that guys and girls have preferences and we want to fuck different people girls want to fuck certain guys guys want to fuck certain girls i i think that there's someone for everyone and not everyone has my preferences and that's fine and i don't fit into other people's preferences but yeah the whole preference versus prejudice shit i think that's bullshit um so yeah that's it's basically all that i'm going to go into on that The next thing I wanted to talk about is surrounding yourself with the people that make you feel alive. I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that you are the five people that you surround yourself with. You take on the personalities, the decision making, the the overall vibes of the people that you hang around with the most. So you should curate your friends carefully And and you don't have to have a shit ton of friends. You know, I probably have three or four people that I keep in constant contact with. And it's not always in person. For example, my friend Dave, who just moved out to San Diego, I have calls with him about once a month. And these are, you know, longer 30 minute, hour long phone calls where we just kind of shoot the shit. We we talk about how we're trying to, you know, level up in life and, and pursue what we're pursuing. And every time I get off the phone, I always feel like I have shit figured out a little bit more than when I got on, got on the phone with him. He, he keeps me in check. He questions things that deserve questioning. If I'm not doing something like the other month, uh, you know, I, I talked about having these uh, kind of repressed emotions of a breakup. I went through a breakup a couple years ago and never really took the time to fully go through it. I kind of just suppressed it down deep in the darknesses of my 
cold black heart and never really examine them. And I think it kind of left these issues that were boiling over that I have with commitment or, or intimacy, just per- personal personal things in general that were popping up in my life where it was apparent that I needed to kind of go through this breakup and analyze it and just go through like this happened and it's okay and I'm recognizing it. And that happened through a conversation that I had with Dave and even more than having uh friends that surround you the five the five people that surround you i think a lot of things that are neglected especially on the male end is just having like male friends that you can talk about shit beyond the typical beer and football games like having having a core group of people that you can shoot the shit with but then get into the deep emotional stuff that's not always oh phone ring um that's not always cool to think about like going through deep shit with your guy friends I think that's something that not enough guys do and I'm trying to put more of those conversations into my life and as you as you surround yourself with these people whatever whenever it is or wherever it is over the phone or in person you should think about you know what does this person do well what 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 are some of their personality traits their decisions that I can kind of adopt into my own life and is there anything that I can help them out with how can I how can I use what I know and what I'm learning what I'm doing to kind of impart onto them you know some helpful tips or wisdom like look for areas in their life you can help them don't make it like this sucking thing where you're just trying to suck the life out of your your five closest friends like a vampire and just trying to take everything for yourself and like once you get what you need from them then you move on to five new people I don't I don't mean it like that I mean put yourself in a position to where you can absorb knowledge from your circle and then also actively look for areas where you can help them in their life however however it is I think this also carries over to beyond just the the physical uh or I guess just like the 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 in-person friendships would be a better word just the face-to-face friendships beyond the face-to-face I think you should also take this approach when you curate your social media feeds like Twitter and Instagram it is not far-fetched to say that your emotions can oftentimes be dictated on the quality of your Instagram feed or your Twitter feed and I mean that if everyone that you follow is spewing hate or you're, you're constantly comparing yourself to people and t- tweeting about things that are negative, you're probably going to leave Twitter or Instagram in a negative mindset. Follow people that inspire you. Follow people that do cool shit. Follow people that make you uncomfortable in a good way where you say, you know, this person is doing a lot of great things that aren't. And I'm not where they're at right now. And that's okay. And I want to do more things to kind of get to where that person is. I've been spending some more time on Twitter lately. And I've made a lot of great podcast connections and direct message connections over Twitter. Because I recently just went through all the garbage that I've been following. And I only curate my Twitter feed with things that are useful and inspiring. And sometimes both. I, I feel like I'm reading a book sometimes when I go through Twitter on you know on finance on discipline on working out because those are things that I'm interested in 
follow things that you're interested in and follow things that are useful and inspiring. Don't follow things that are negative. It, it's, I understand it because it's it like, it in like a sick, twisted way, it's fun to go through negative shit. Like, oh, haha, like this person happened. This person is in a shitty situation. Like, at least I'm not them. Or like, fuck this person. Like, I'm going to pile on the hate. There's a hashtag about this person right now. So I'm going to come up with a creative way to dunk on them with a certain hashtag on Twitter. Like, I get that. Like, I've I've fallen into that before, but it's just not healthy. Like, I don't, I don't leave twitter feeling like a better person than when i started but now i feel like every time that i go on twitter it's like a, a bunch of useful information twitter gets a bad rap for being this garbage dump of tweets and hate and that's only like you are in control of your feed just like you're in control of who you hang out with and how you spend your life and who you spend your time with so make sure that you curate your feed carefully Something else I wanted to get into is the concept of fiction and how fiction came into mankind. So, you know, I've been reading, rereading the book Sapiens by Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari, I apologize. The book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. And one of the things that he goes through is mankind's entrance into fiction. And the way he presents it is that there were a bunch of human species living hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. I believe the, the, the Homo genus first appeared 2.5 million years ago. And there were a bunch of human species living side by side simultaneously in different areas of the planet. The Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, Neanderthals, a bunch of different types of species. We're actually living in a unique time where Homo sapiens are just walking the earth. This this is uh, something that's only been going on, uh, I believe, the past fifty to seventy five thousand years. You'll have to check me on that. But we, either way, we're living in a unique time where Homo sapiens are walking around as the only species of humans. It's not, you know, there aren't Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and Homo erectus and other different types of species living amongst each other. And Harari uh, supposes that part of the reason why Homo sapiens came to dominate the other species is the adoption of fiction. And that's really hard to gather a group of people, more than 150 people, when you don't have a story to unite behind. So making up stories is actually a good way to unite people because you can then get behind that story no matter how silly it is like even uh whatever belief it is you know you can get behind something at least you have something in common with other people to kind of push you through when you know you may not believe in the people by your side maybe you don't maybe you don't fully believe in each individual but you all have this common thread that is getting you through so people make up stories and they use those stories to motivate people. And part of this is uh, how religion probably came to be. From fiction, Homo sapiens were able to create religion. And they they use the story to unite people. And somehow, that's up for debate, they either um, interbred with other species of humans or 
Homo sapiens were extremely genocidal and just wiped out other species of humans. It's probably a combination of both. Um, I mean, if you look at human history, we we have a problem with people that we see as others, and we have been very genocidal in the past. So I tend to believe more in the genocidal theory. But the the point is that the fiction allowed homo sapiens to dominate these other species because they weren't smart enough to come up with stories and put, give meanings to things beyond their the the object meaning so like uh, maybe a neanderthal would just see a rock and that was the end of the story but a homo, a homo sapien would see you know maybe there's a spirit within that rock or like some sort of rock god or, or a story like some something to ascribe meaning where meaning was not there hence the making up of the story the fiction so fiction has a useful place in humanity and that eventually led to religion so i think that fiction and religion is or was a necessary way for us to evolve we needed those stories to rally behind and get behind and to kind of push us forward and and unite us into things that eventually led to the enlightenment the industrial revolution you know you fast forward hundreds of thousands of years into the future fiction does a lot of good it's great to be able to make up stories and tell them and unite behind them a thought i've been having recently is have we outgrown religion you know i mentioned i'm an I'm an atheist and I recognize the importance of religion. I recognize the importance that people need to believe in something. And I'm not someone, you know, who's going to say like, oh, look at you fucking peasants or idiots for believing in God. That's not what I think at all. I think that there's incredible value to religion and the structure that people uh, abide by to go through religious ceremonies. Like when people unite in churches or synagogues mosques it's a place of community people are getting together for other reasons besides their god they want to see people and socialize and it's like a place of of getting to know one another so i do think that religion has value what i'm questioning is has has the belief in the fictional side of the religion these stories that did not happen um but people believe so widely that it did happen. Has that kind of run its course? In other words, like religion was necessary to get us up to this point. But now that we are at this point, like has religion run its course? It was something that was necessary to get us here. And, you know, I don't know. Part of what scares me is that, you know, I do think we need something to believe in. So if it's not religion, what is that? It's, it's not just going to close the gap. There's going to be a vacuum if people move beyond religion and what's going to fill that, I honestly have no idea. And and that's what scares me. And I've been thinking about the connection between fiction, religion, reason, evidence, how that all comes together. And I thought that Harari had an interesting perspective on it. Um, going through the whole adoption of fiction and how Homo sapiens were the first ones to <clears throat> create stories that didn't happen and then were able to rally behind those stories. And now here we are today and we're still creating stories. Fiction still has incredible value. And I'm not questioning that. I, I'm questioning the value of religion. So that's where I'm at 
right now. And I'll probably be thinking about this for a while. It's a, it's a very nuanced thing. And I don't know if I'll ever have an answer, but I can try to ask uh, good questions. So yeah, I'll, I'll just leave you to ponder that with that topic. The, I guess the last, the main topic, last main topic that I wanted to get into is a quote from Ryan Holiday. He's a best-selling author of Ego is the Enemy, Obstacle is the Way. Also, his most recent book, Stillness is the Key. He is an avid practicer of stoicism. And I just like the way that he writes. I like the way that he thinks. And there's a quote in Ego is the Enemy that goes like this. Ryan Holiday writes, quote, Passion is form over function. Purpose is function, function, function. Again, that's passion is form over function. Purpose is function, function, function. So when we think of passion, we think of like this very emotional drive to do something. And I think that it's very helpful to push us in the right direction. You you need you need passion in order I think to find your purpose, you, you're uh, you, they're connected in some way. I think you don't always have to be super passionate about something at the beginning for it to be your purpose. Sometimes you discover that passion along the way, but the two, the two are definitely connected. Where I think people get into trouble is that their passion, they let their passion blind them. Where you get so caught up in something that you love, you convince yourself that this is the only thing that's ever going to be for you. There's no other way to do it. And there's nothing, nothing else that can ever replace this. Like, this is my true passion. Follow your heart, follow your passion. And I got, I kind of got caught up into this when I was, when I was playing baseball, um, all the way from the time to five years old to when I was 23, when I stopped playing in college my passion, my main passion was baseball. And that was the only thing I ever wanted to do up until later in my college career. It was baseball or bust. And somehow like I knew even when I sucked at baseball, like in high school, I didn't throw very hard. I wasn't very good. I was a serviceable pitcher and I was good for a period of time in college before I had a couple surgeries and washed out. That's a different story. But for a long time, I just let my passion lead me without taking the steps necessary to foster a purpose, to foster that passion and actually take actions to where I can make a living off of that passion. Passion is great. And it's what led me to baseball and what led me to hold on to baseball so long. But there was kind of like this blindness that came with it where I just thought that things were going to work out just because I was passionate about it. Like the passion in some way was was going to make everything work out without me having to take actions or be realistic about my talents. And I think that's that's what's most harmful. You can't let it blind you. You you have to figure out like what what is your function? How are you going to do this? What steps are you going to take that are necessary to become a major league baseball player? Before that, how are you even going to go, go to college to play baseball? How are you going to get drafted after college? How are you going to stand out in the minor leagues? How are you going to throw harder? How are you going to recover? How are you going to make sure that you stay healthy day after day as a baseball player? It's performing the function. The function is the grit 
the the daily tasks the the acting small on a daily basis you can dream dream big fucking dream for the stars have have dreams and and goals that scare the shit out of you but if you don't act small if you don't act with your function and mind like holiday says purpose is function passion is form it's it's going to crush you and leave you looking for you know where did i go wrong like it's almost an awakening when you come out of the the blindness of passion where you think like oh okay like you know maybe i didn't take the right steps to do that maybe i didn't do everything i could have to be a baseball player maybe baseball was just one step in my life maybe it wasn't meant to take over my whole life even though i'm not playing baseball right now that was still a formative step in my life that led to extreme growth and i still call on those skills to do other things maybe my passion was blinding me to the fact that there are other options out there that i should be pursuing you get this like tunnel tunnel vision with passion where it's like this is the only way and this has to work out and if not then it's a fucking bust and purpose is what will allow you to kind of ground you like you 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 need to go through the shit that you're going to do every single day in order to keep that passion alive so passion is form over function it's like kind of you know what is it what does it feel like passion is like a very you know emotional like oh like gut a visceral reaction and purpose is just like the down and dirty like this is what i need to do i have to plan this out I have to get to this stage and you can't have, I I don't think you can have purpose without passion, but even worse, I think is having passion without purpose because that would just lead you blind. And I want to leave you guys with a quote from Nelson Mandela of all people. Um, This quote, I believe I found it in my daily journal, my five minute journal. There's a quote on the top of every page. So Nelson Mandela said, quote, when we dehumanize and demonize our opponents, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and seek to justify violence against them. Again, that's when we dehumanize and demonize our opponents, we abandon the possibility of peacefully resolving our differences and seek to justify violence against them by Nelson Mandela. I hope you guys enjoyed that Ogzoro chat. Have a fucking fantastic week, and I will see you guys next time.